Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Edward B. Rock, the Martin Lipton Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Institute of Corporate Governance and Finance at New York University School of Law. Professor Rock is a co-author of a recent research paper entitled Corporate Governance Welfareism. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Professor, your paper concludes that corporate governance is on the verge of entering a new stage which you describe as corporate governance welfareism. So before we discuss what that means and why you think we're headed there, can you first describe for us what you believe to be the current stage of corporate governance? So let me start with a description of what I take to be, what I refer to sometimes as the old-time religion. And it's the idea that the goal of corporate governance is to build valuable firms There are different theories about how you build out valuable firms. There are the managerialists who think that leaving the managers to run the company and to balance the interests of various stakeholders is the best way to build great firms. And there are those, I call them the shareholderists, who think that a sharp focus on increasing shareholder value is the best way to build valuable firms. But both managerialists and shareholders both agree that the goal of the exercise is to build valuable firms. Now, how does that link with social welfare? And here, I think we we go back to Adam Smith and the invisible hand of the market. The idea is in the traditional old-time religion that if private actors pursue their own good through building valuable firms, whether it's for the benefit of shareholders or the benefit of a larger group, the idea is that that through pursuing your own good, that in reasonably competitive markets, and where government is controlling externalities like environmental risk and so forth, that that will produce overall social welfare. That's the classic Adam Smith view. And it is the background behind the traditional understanding of why corporate governance is actually a welfare-promoting activity. So, Professor, what is corporate governance welfareism? Why do you believe we're heading to that form of corporate governance? And when do you believe we'll arrive there? So let's let's think about what people think is wrong with the old-time religion. Let's start there. Lots of people have argued, and I think with a great deal of evidence, that actually our markets are not all that competitive in many cases. And that, moreover, we can't count on government to provide the guardrails within which companies pursuing their own private interest operate. And there are lots of explanations for why that is. A lot of people are frustrated, for instance, with the government's failure to adopt reasonable regulation to control climate change. Lots of people point to campaign contributions by corporations as undermining the ability of the government to set the guardrails. And critics of the status quo conclude from that this traditional defense of market capitalism is no longer convincing, that the old-time religion is no longer sufficient because we can no longer count on firms pursuing their own good to facilitate social welfare. So to take what I think of as the most useful examples, think about climate change. The question is whether we can count on firms, say Exxon or Chevron, pursuing their own good to actually adopt a plan for those companies 
that takes into account the social cost of carbon. Because after all, we don't have a carbon tax. And so firms are not forced by regulation to take into account the social cost of carbon. And so many argue that as a result of that, we're producing too much carbon, which is leading to climate change and ultimately will destroy us all. And it's against that backdrop that people have started to look towards the business sector in various ways to substitute for what they see as the failure of the political sector to adopt carbon tax or some other mechanism through which corporations will be forced to take the social cost of carbon into account in their budgeting decisions. So that then leaves the question of how to do it. And here, this is what the paper is really about. The conceptual contribution of the paper is to analyze what we see as three different approaches to handling this, what a lot of people think is a crisis, three different approaches that are attempts to better align what corporations are doing with general social welfare. And so we point to really three versions of it that actually, I think, nicely describe the kind of efforts that there now are in what we're calling a welfareist approach. So let me start with the first, uh, which I associate with Rick Alexander and shareholder comments. So Rick Alexander is a very interesting guy. He was a longtime Delaware lawyer, so he's completely immersed in traditional corporate law. He then worked with B-Lab in developing the corporations was very active in Delaware's reforms of its corporate law to produce public benefit corporations. And now he's moved to shareholder commons. And the argument that Rick Alexander makes is law. Individual companies seeking to maximize their own value have no incentive to take into account the social cost of carbon, for instance. But a universal owner or universal asset manager, like BlackRock, like Vanguard, like a variety of other intermediaries, when they look at their overall portfolio, have much better incentives. Maybe not perfectly aligned with the social welfare function, but much better incentives because, of course, your members and universal owners of all sorts are, are managing for the long term. They need to be able to pay pension obligations 50 years from now. And if carbon continues to be produced uh, unchanged and it destroys our environment, then their portfolios will suffer. And so the argument that Rick makes is that BlackRock, and he put a shareholder proposal on the BlackRock proxy state, that BlackRock should manage its portfolio on a portfolio basis. There's a very nice paper that Madison Condon, who teaches at BU, wrote, where she came up with a, a very interesting, if somewhat unrealistic, hypo, where she said, look, suppose that forcing Exxon and Chevron to reduce their carbon output by 40% would reduce overall carbon output for each of them, say, 1% of the total carbon in the atmosphere each year comes from each of them, that the reduction in overall carbon output would be significant. Now, it would lead, she hypothesizes, to, say, a 20% drop in their stock price. Should a BlackRock or a Vanguard or one of your members support an attempt to reduce, to force Exxon or Chevron to cut their output by 40% and, and suffer a 20% drop in stock price, because the benefit to the rest of the portfolio will be net-net positive. And she argues that it's plausible that that would be the case. That's what we're calling portfolio welfare. It's managing the portfolio not with a focus on maximizing the value of each individual firm, 
But considering the value of investments outside of the individual firm, namely the other firms in the portfolio. And it's it's a very different approach than either of the two traditional approaches. It's different than managerialism because it's not about maximizing the value of the firm by giving deference to management discretion and decision-making. And it's not the same. It's very different from shareholderism because, again, the focus of those who say that boards should maximize shareholder value is still on the individual firm and shareholders' interest as shareholders of that firm. Here, it's consistent with the focus on shareholder interest, but now it expands what counts as a shareholder interest to the interest of shareholders in their other portfolio investments. And so we argue that that's a very, very big change from traditional corporate law and corporate governance. The other two approaches are somewhat less well-known. There's a second approach, which we call shareholder welfare, which says, look, let's take seriously the idea that corporations are managed for their shareholders. This comes from Oliver Hart and Luigi Zingales, two excellent finance economists. And they say, look, in their personal lives, many shareholders will pay $120 to buy a product if in doing so, it leads to a better environmental outcome, even though they could buy a similar product for $100. That individuals in their own consumer behavior are willing to pay more for environmentally friendly products. And if they're willing to do that in their individual spending, why wouldn't they want their corporations to do the same thing? Why wouldn't they want their corporations to incur additional costs to further and to increase the welfare of the shareholders? Now, there are lots of arguments you can make about, well, what if shareholders have different views and so forth? And how do you figure out what the shareholder view is? But for our purposes, what is In this paper, what's most dramatic about this is how it changes, how it departs from the old-time religion. Because remember, the old-time religion focuses on single firms and increasing, maximizing the value of single firms. Why is it in that framework plausible to say to a board of directors, you should maximize share price only because share price is quite a good proxy for firm value in lots of, of situations? Uh, so that the rule of thumb maximize share price is completely consistent with what is in fact the duty of directors. The duty of directors runs to the individual corporation for the benefit of the shareholders, perhaps. But the idea that you maximize shareholder value, there's no way that maximizing, I'm sorry, shareholder welfare, there's no way that maximizing shareholder welfare is a proxy for firm value. And so it represents a very large divergence. The third sort of approach is Colin Mayer's approach, where he says, look, we need to directly align the utility function, if you will, of corporations with socially valuable conduct that corporations have to adopt as a mandatory matter, a corporate purpose statement that aligns with solving problems of people and the planet without causing any harm. There again, we're departing. He's departing from the old-time religion and saying, no, it's not enough for a corporation to seek to maximize the value of the corporation consistent with applicable law. He wants to go beyond that and say, no, you have a positive affirmative obligation to align with social welfare. All three of those really are departures from the old-time religion and it's an interesting way of thinking about it because we're, we're so accustomed to the debate between people who believe in shareholderism and people who think that a larger group of stakeholders' interests should count. The shareholder-stakeholder debate is such an old debate. 
This debate cuts the world up in a different way. It's whether the focus should be on individual firms, which both the shareholders and the stakeholders think is the case, or whether the focus should in one way or another, directly or indirectly, be on social welfare. Now, why do we think that this is a change that is in the works? There's lots of early evidence, which is to say, I don't know if it's going to happen. That's in the future. And you know, we see pushback as well. So it's an open question whether, in fact, there'll be a change. But there are a variety of different bits of evidence that we think suggests that there will be a change. Part of it is the role of nonprofits like shareholder commons, uh, pushing for shareholder-driven climate activism. Part of it is that we've seen large institutional investors, such as BlackRock Stewardship Group, in some of what it says. It's quite ambiguous as to ultimately where their position is. But Some of what they say about carbon and climate change is a pretty clear signal to firms that whether or not it increases firm value, they want firms to have a strategy for reducing their carbon emissions. Now, we see there's regulation that comes out of the SEC that makes us think that there is a welfareist aspect to it. So, for instance, with the proposed rules on new carbon disclosure, Some of those, I think, are justified as looking after shareholder interests as investors. But others, for instance, the scope three, the idea of the proposal to require disclosure of scope three carbon emissions, seem much better explained as welfareist, as seeking to actually directly use the securities laws to directly promote social welfare by putting ultimately shareholder pressure and market pressure on firms to reduce their carbon output, whether or not that is justified in terms of promoting the value of that individual firm. So we see lots of, there's lots of uh, evidence that pushes in this direction. There are those who think that millennial investors who currently seem to care a lot about ESG, both in their purchasing and in their financial and investment decisions will continue to do so. And as they mature and as wealth moves into their hands, if they continue to have these preferences, ultimately the system will change because ultimately what investors want has a very obviously important influence. At the same time, of course, there's a backlash and we're seeing now that backlash grow and spread with clear effects. So Vivek Ramaswamy wrote Woke Capitalism, book that got a lot of attention. He then started Strive. He's now running for president. In some sense, one understanding of Vivek Ramaswamy's worldview is the old-time religion, that corporations should stick to their lane and shareholders should stick to their lane. That corporate law, as I said at the beginning, the old-time view of corporate law, the view that I was taught when I was in law school, is that corporate law is about building great firms. In the course of building great firms, you have to figure out how to control the divergence of interest between shareholders and managers, the agency cost problem. You have to figure out how to keep the capital locked in the firm and so forth. But ultimately, what corporate law is about is building great firms. And what the law of asset management, both trust law and ERISA law, is about aligning the interest of asset managers with the beneficiaries so as to maximize the value of the portfolio. And one way of understanding The more traditional part of Vivek Ramaswamy's view, certainly the way I think I would articulate it is, 
is it's very much the old view of corporate law with the added bit that when asset managers get out of their lane, they invite a political reaction. And that I think is, is I think we're seeing that. And I think there's a lot to that. Whether who wins the political battle, I don't know. It's too early to tell. But the point I think he's making, and a bunch of other people have made, Phil Graham has made this point as well, is a point about corporate law, corporate governance, corporations, and asset management staying within its lane. Because as as I've heard Phil Graham argue, what I view as political failure, as gridlock, which is to say Congress's unwillingness or inability to enact what I think is reasonable regulation of carbon to avoid climate change, can be, or perhaps should be, redescribed as the political process at work. That what I think of as legislative failure is simply that my preferred policy wasn't adopted. And Phil Graham makes this argument that having failed to convince Congress to enact my preferred environmental policy, having failed to convince the courts to adopt what would be my preferred environmental policy, that now people with that view are now turning to asset management to push that policy. And he makes the point that that's to use the retirement assets of America's workers to pursue that particular political view. Now, I think there are responses to that because, of course, climate change is real and could completely eliminate the value of the portfolios. And so I think there is a response to that. And I, that's not the debate I'm getting into here. But I think the politics of this is extremely, extremely tricky. And now that we've seen how complex the politics are once shareholder-driven climate activism begins to, to make some progress, we can also, I think, predict that if in fact it continues, then maybe, and this is the pessimistic part, maybe what happens is the polarization that we see in the political realm gets replicated in the corporate realm. And that the polarization we see in our political elections gets replicated in our corporate elections. Professor, how can you reconcile the existing fiduciary duty obligations of corporate directors, money managers, and asset owners with corporate governance welfareism? So the question is easier at the corporate level than at the asset management. So at the corporate level, we give directors appropriately a huge amount of discretion through the business judgment. And there's lots of activities of firms that are conducive to increasing social welfare that also are appropriate for promoting the value of the firm. So for instance, if you're a property and casualty insurance company and you're writing policies in Florida or California, paying close attention to climate change and integrating climate change into your business is not just appropriate, it's essential because your biggest risks these days are from climate change. And a board of of a property casualty insurance company that says, look, we're going to pay close attention to climate change and the effects of climate change, while you could argue that that's a version of woke capitalism is simply proper management of a company that a board of directors, I think, would be negligent in not paying attention. So there are examples like that where clearly for their business, taking it into account is appropriate. Frankly, I think you know Vivek Ramaswamy would agree with that because there you can draw the link between taking climate into account and your business. At the same time, there are more ambiguous kinds of strategies that also, I think, if a board thinks it's important, are perfectly appropriate within traditional corporate law. So 
if you operate an oil company in Europe and you look at the European regulation and the arc of the European regulation, you might say that simply as a matter of managing your business, you better be thinking hard about what you're going to do in a post-carbon future. Because for your European operations, you may get there sooner than you think. And so if you're an oil company, you might say, we should devote 10 or 20% of our cash flow to investing in renewable energy. Not because we're wild-eyed environmentalists, but because we operate in an environment in which managing for the long term, that's something we have to take into account. And that, again, is criticized by people on the other side, but strikes me as well within the normal range of management and business decisions. Where it gets hard is when you're paying attention to these things and there are trade-offs. If you sacrifice the value of your firm because you've got shareholders who are portfolio investors who say, no, we understand this is going to cost Exxon a 20% drop in its stock price, but that's good for our portfolio. There, it seems to me, the directors have a fiduciary duty to push back under traditional corporate law. And it's the equivalent of being pressured by a controlling shareholder to do something that benefits the controlling shareholder, but not the firm. And that's where you have legal risk. And so I think that kind of the trade-offs strategy is a non-starter. On the asset management side, it's more complicated. Because whereas the business judgment rule in traditional corporate law, as enforced by courts, says, look, you have, is there a plausible story you can tell? about how this decision you've made to treat your employees well promotes long-term firm value. And lawyers who advise boards are very good at coming up with those stories that you can tell. On the asset management side, ERISA law and traditional trust law isn't satisfied historically with a nice plausible story, but they want evidence. And because, of course, asset managers owe really robust fiduciary duties to their beneficiaries. And the evidentiary problem, I think, makes it a much harder task for the asset managers, not for initiatives that they believe are actually going to raise all boats. So let me give you a good example. Good governance. We go back and forth about whether good governance is a firm-specific or a general sort of thing. I tend to think it varies firm to firm, but I understand that lots of people think, for instance, that staggered boards are bad corporate hygiene. And lots of investors take the position that there shouldn't be staggered boards. That, I think, is is not a problem because that's a sincere belief that it's good for the whole portfolio and good for the shareholders to push companies to get rid of staggered boards. I I would disagree with that, but, but I think that fits nicely within the traditional framework. But to go back to my Exxon Chevron hypo, were a asset manager to take the position that Rick Alexander was pushing and believes in? or that Madison Condon's hypo raises, if a mutual fund family were to take the position that Exxon should cut its output by 40%, even at a cost of 20% of the stock price, it seems to me that there are two problems that make that for the asset manager a non-starter. The first is there's great tension between that and the fiduciary duties. And the second is its intention with their business model. Because if you are a family of mutual funds and you have an oil and gas ETF, that strategy, which might be a good strategy for your index 500 fund, is a terrible strategy for your oil and gas ETF. And there you have two problems. One is 
you owe fiduciary duties to the investors in your oil and gas ETF. And secondly, simply as a business matter, if you're taking that position as the stewardship group at the fund family, nobody's going to invest in your oil and gas ETF. And so I don't believe, I think when it comes to that sort of what you might call systemic stewardship with trade-offs, it's a non-starter. It's a non-starter on the corporate board fiduciary duty side. It's a non-starter on the asset management side. And here we have an earlier paper called Systemic Stewardship with Trade-Offs, where we're pushing back against those in the academy and folks like Rick Alexander, who are really pushing for systemic stewardship, even when there are trade-offs. And we think that's a non-starter. And I think most of your members would say, no, no, if there are trade-offs, we can't go there. Now, what do you get instead? You may get some soft versions that masquerade as focused on a single firm, but may be supported from people who have a genuine concern with systemic stewardship. And here I'm thinking of Engine One at Exxon. Engine One's strategy was a pure single firm focused strategy. Their strategy, their their critique of Exxon was that Exxon's capital budgeting was all messed up because they had a wrong view about the long-term demand for oil and that they were over-investing in a way that was hurting the value of Exxon. They were accused by Exxon when Exxon was defending the proxy contest. They were accused by Exxon of promoting a welfareist approach of actually trying to reduce carbon in the atmosphere because it's good for society and that they were accused of simply pretending to be focused on the value of Exxon. But they pushed back strong on that, and I believe them. I think they really were focused on what they thought was bad capital budgeting. But what about the people who supported it? Did people support it because they thought it was bad capital budgeting and thus injured the Exxon value of Exxon? Did they support it because they thought that whether or not it was good for Exxon to cut its investment in developing new oil fields, it would be good for the rest of their portfolio? Who knows? I can't look into the hearts and minds of of people who made decisions. But what was interesting about the strategy of of the proxy contest is it could attract support from both groups. On the other hand, if you're doing it that way, sort of sotto voce sort of shareholder driven climate activism, I don't think it can come close to moving the needle on carbon in the atmosphere. And so for Marcel Kahan and myself, in both of these papers, we both think that climate change is a real problem. And that there needs to be preferably something like a carbon tax to control it. But there's no substitute for politics. There's no substitute for Congress enacting climate regulation. The shareholder-driven climate activism and the other sorts of shareholder-driven welfareist attempts to substitute for political gridlock, we think are a distraction and doomed to fail. Final question. Professor, you indicate in your paper that the push towards corporate governance welfareism will take hold and grow. But your view seems to ignore the current facts on the ground. For example, we know that government officials in 20 states are actively advocating for legislation and or pursuing litigation that would force corporate directors and executives or asset managers and asset owners to focus solely on financial returns rather than on some broader view of shareholder value. So in that current environment, which many believe will not wane in the foreseeable future, how can you be confident that corporate governance welfareism, as you define it, will take hold and grow? So the truth is I'm not. And the paper has 
evolved over time. And I think we have a, a newer draft than the draft that you read where we're less optimistic because I, I see the politics. I think you're absolutely right. There has been this very strong pushback and now the, the battle has been joined. And I think it is, in fact, too early to tell who's going to win. And it's not just a battle for this year or next. It's a battle for the next 50 years because climate change is not going away. And we haven't yet figured out a way to control it from a, a regulatory perspective. And so the issue is not going away. Whether the role of corporate governance welfareism will be to directly align the interests of corporations with social welfare, as some of the proponents of welfareism argue, or whether its effect will be more indirect, I don't know. So an optimistic, to the extent I'm optimistic, and I, I'm basically an optimist. There's another channel by which this may be effective. So let's take, again, shareholder-driven climate activism as, as the example. So the shareholders have been leaning heavily on the major oil companies, both here and in Europe. Now, maybe the effect of that is to change their capital budgeting decisions and to reduce their output. And maybe that can make a significant difference in the carbon that goes into the atmosphere. But there's another possible story here, which is that that's not the big effect, that the big effect is not going to be to get Exxon directly to change the amount of carbon it puts into the world, but to change Exxon's political positions. Because after all, if Exxon and Chevron, because of shareholder pressure, are forced to take the social cost of carbon into account in their decisions, but their competitors among the independent exploration and production companies do not have to do that, then for Exxon and for Chevron, they're fighting with one hand tied behind their back. And how do they in that world level the playing field? They level the playing field by getting the same restrictions imposed on their competitors. And there's evidence of that. Much to my surprise, I discovered that the American Petroleum Institute supports a carbon tax. The Business Roundtable supports a carbon tax. Now, you can take a cynical view of that. They support it because they don't think there's any chance that it will be enacted. But there's another view which strikes me as entirely plausible. And I heard the story, I don't know if it's true, that the majors went to the American Petroleum Institute and said, look, we're getting killed on this issue. Everybody's leaning on us to take the social cost of carbon into account. And you guys are in the pockets of the independents. So unless you change your view, we're just going to stop supporting the American Petroleum Institute. And that the change came from pressure from the majors. Now, if that's even half true, then it seems to me it's a very optimistic sign. Because at the point that the Business Roundtable and the American Petroleum Institute begin to say, we need a society, an economy-based regulation of carbon. We can't leave it up to individual firms and shareholder pressure. We need it to be done at a economy-wide basis that that potentially changes the politics. It doesn't change the politics right now because you know it's not clear who the Chamber of Commerce goes to in Washington these days. It's not the progressive Democrats and it's not the MAGA Republicans. So the traditional address for the Chamber of Commerce, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, was the Republican Party. But that version of the Republican Party is not dominant today in Republican politics. So until our politics goes back to a much more normal kind of politics where the Republican Party is, is in addition to everything else, is the party of big business. It's not clear, even if there's consensus in the business community that we need reasonable environmental regulation, it's not clear where they go to get that enacted on Capitol Hill.
That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to again thank my special guest, Professor Edward B. Rock, the Martin Lipton Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Institute for Corporate Governance and Finance at New York University School of Law. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.